Good morning. It's nice, like April, a bunch of us have been kind of coming and going the last several weeks, and uh, it's nice to be back home. I, um, it was fun for me uh, to be able to watch Steve. I hope you were here this last couple of weeks to, to be here with Steve Lewis. And as Justin said, uh, we'll be going through in our small groups one of his books on uh, spiritual landscapes. He talked about that the last couple of weeks, and I'm really excited. So while he was here, um, our, our IT manager, Trevor Owen, or Trevor Holland, excuse me, um, he did a video series of, uh, that Steve was able to put together to coincide with our small groups. And Steve will be here um, on fall kickoff to work with our small group leaders to prep them for that uh, series. I'm just really excited to be able to work with him. Another thing we're going to do uh, this fall on Wednesday nights we're going to offer what would normally be our Stephen Ministry training uh, for anyone that would like to participate. It'd be Wednesday nights in our Wednesday night slot, uh, right after our com common meal, um, Wednesday evenings at 6.30. And uh, very excited about this. To me, Stephen Ministry training, I've gone through the training, I don't know how many times. I, the first time I went through, probably about 30 years ago. Um, yeah, it was, about 28 years ago, I think now. And uh, it's, it's gone through several iterations, and I've been able to go through it several times. Uh, they've redone the training. And uh, if you've had it before, you might want to uh, come and take it again just as, as a refresher course. But it's really uh, it's just on being a disciple. I think just in the trenches to be able to journey with people, uh, talk about listening skills, uh, be a variety of, of different um, really, really practical uh, things that we'll go through. It, it is a pretty um, intensive, just so you know, um, an intensive program, and it's a lot of work, but it's absolutely worth it, and it's going to take some commitment. Uh, really excited for us to journey through this. I think we will be a better church if um, the more and more people in our congregation to go through this, and so just consider that Wednesday nights. Uh, today we're going to start a new series on several of Paul's letters we'll be going through uh, that are all grouped together, and, and they're really unique. Uh, they were written while the Apostle Paul was in prison. Now, now who's the Apostle Paul? Well, Apostle Paul, a really huge figure, and wrote over half the books in the New Testament. Uh, if you want to read through his story, it's the last half of the Acts of the Apostles. But Paul started out as a, a zealous rabbi. His name was Saul, and he saw it as his personal mission to persecute the early church. Went after the early Christians. He just wanted to destroy them. And then there's a great story. It's in, it's in um, the Acts of the Apostles, also in Galatians, when he was on his way on the road to Damascus, and the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And everything changed for Paul, even his, or Saul, every, even his name changed, like I said, to Paul. Uh, and the Apostle Paul, he spent his life committed to going throughout the Mediterranean to start churches. He saw himself as the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And like I said, over half of the New Testament letters are written by Paul. Uh, most of those letters are written to churches that he started. Some are written to individuals. He wrote four of those letters, though, Colossians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and the letter to Philemon while he was in prison, most likely in a prison in Ephesus. We don't know quite for sure, but, but most likely. And I've become 
really fascinated personally with Paul's letters uh, from the prisons uh, just, just recently. And, and I'm just, you know, the more I think about it, have you ever been in a situation where you're just completely out of control? You don't have the freedom to come and go as you please. You can't do what you want. Maybe it's an illness. Uh, Maybe an injury has left you bedridden. But you just can't do what you want. You you, you just can't even go anywhere or do anything. You know, one one time, um, about 14 years ago, I think, I was in Honduras. I spent a lot of time in Honduras over the years. And there was a, a political issue, and the government imposed a shutdown of the entire country. And it was a fascinating thing. And I spent about a week in a bed and breakfast. I've spent, I've gone to dozens and dozens of times, Casa Grande, some of us have been there. And Casa Grande is amazing. It's an ancient, ancient, old uh, uh, bed and breakfast in Comiagua. It's right next to two of the, the oldest cathedrals in the Americas, and it's just a beautiful old world feel. I love Casa Grande. Um, but when the whole country went under curfew, it didn't take very long until I felt like I was under house arrest. And I, I remember, you know, poking my head out the front door and this street that is normally incredibly busy um, was either just absolutely vacant or there would be military, uh, tanks and everything, just patrolling the area to make sure everyone stayed in their homes. And after a couple days, uh, they started opening up the country. It was like one hour a day, then the next hour a day would be two hours a day, then three, and it was so people could go back and, and restock, you know, because they were out of food and everything, uh, water. And eventually we, we snuck out of the country uh, when they got to like five hours. We went uh, to through El Salvador, which was interesting, and that was a whole other thing. But the only time I really ever felt like we were in danger, we had a truck we didn't have the papers for, and we knew we did have to have them when we went through El Salvador. And so um, we had to go downtown to Guzagalpa, which was where everything was happening. And I remember there was one moment we were driving down this road, and there was a helicopter just stopped right above an intersection. And we got to the intersection and there was demonstrators coming one way and the military coming the other way and we were there. <laughs> it's like, ah! But other than that, it was just you know completely safe. It was just basically the most boring years I've ever spelt, spent in a couple days. And uh, you know, I, I just wanted to go home. And my point is my experience with house arrest was nothing like the Apostle Paul's experience in prison. Prison in Paul's day was very different than what we think of. And, and generally, it was more of a holding area. And so they put you in a, uh, in a cell, in a place. But, but it was more while they're trying to figure out what to do with you. And that most likely meant they'd kill you. They'd banish you. You didn't know. And we're in Casa Grande, the staff, I mean, they, they made us coffee. And they cooked for us. And, you know, they took care. I watched Spanish soap operas. Price was right in Spanish, you know. For uh, <laughs> They didn't provide anything for the prisoners in Paul's day. It was dark. It was damp. And the prisoners, they would become thirsty. 
malnourished. They'd fall ill. Horrible smells. I mean, rotten food, human excrement. I mean, just everything. Death. And the, the prisoners, they had to rely on their friends to come and, and bring them food to take care of them because they didn't, they didn't care. Paul had friends who would come and take care of him while he was in prison. And, and I want you to think about this situation because what do you think most people would, in this type of situation, would focus on if a friend came to see them? And you're alone and, and you're just suffering. In the dark misery of this, this Roman prison and you're just left alone with your thoughts and then one of your friends shows up. And you don't know what's going to happen to you at all. You're just waiting to hear. They really might kill you. And every time a door opens, you know, and footsteps start coming toward you, you're, you're just wondering if this is the moment. I mean, just anxiety and fear. What do you think you talk about with your friends when they come to visit you? I'm thinking most of us would be focused on our misery, right? And, and, and how bad it is. And, and then the fear and the anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen. And, and we'd be complaining and it'd be miserable on one hand, but we'd just be afraid of the future, right? I mean, really, I don't know what they're going to do to me. I, what's going to happen to me? I think that's a, absolutely natural when you're facing an unknown future beyond your control. Most of us would dwell on ourselves. And if you read the content, my point is, of Paul's prison letters, his concern is completely outward. It's fairly amazing. You know, what's happening in the churches? How are they doing? Philippians, he wrote in prison, known as the Epistle of Joy. And we're going to see in a minute, Colossians. Colossians is all about thanksgiving and gratitude. Philemon, uh, and I'm excited. I've never preached on Philemon before. I'm actually really, really excited about that. But it's, it's Paul just pleading for reconciliation and forgiveness. So he's stuck in this prison cell. And he's just awaiting an unknown sentence, an unknown future. And, and he just wants to hear what's going on in these churches that he loves so much. And, and he wants to help them. He wants to be a cheerleader for them. He can't do much, but what he can do, he can do two things. He can pray for them and he can write to them. And he does both. You know, someone, someone would visit him, give him an update, tell him about these churches. And after he heard the stories probably through windows or, or, or bars or something like this, you know, in another room. But Paul would dictate letters to these other churches. And like churches, like the church at Colossae, the, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, Paul had never been to Colossae. It's kind of a unique uh, letter for, for Paul to write. 
was an infant church, probably maybe about a dozen people, you know, were in the church at Colossae. We, we don't exactly know, but the point is he didn't know them. And this was rare because usually Paul wrote to church communities that he knew, that he had started. Usually he'd lived with them for several years. Uh, he was their spiritual father. He was their founding pastor. And uh, other than Romans, uh, Paul usually wrote to people that he knew very well about issues that he heard were threatening the church. Paul's friend Epaphras is the one who started the church at Colossae. And it wasn't a very large town. It wasn't an important town in the scheme of things, about 110 miles from Ephesus-ish. But Epaphras came to visit Paul in prison. And he told Paul about this brand new community, this brand new church, and he described baby Christians, right? They're just brand new in the faith. They're infants. And the people from all walks of life in the community, we'll talk about that as we get into this, but that never happened in that Roman world. You know, usually you, you were in a social class and you stayed in that social class. So there was, there was a men's world, there was a women's world, obviously, but there was also a laborer's world, there was a slave, um, slave world, there was a Roman citizen's world, Jewish world, Gentile world, and you just didn't ever mix. But the church was a very different kind of community. And all of those different peoples, they, they just came together. It was a beautiful image. And, and they were going to have struggles. And they were going to have internal and external issues. And they were going to have relational issues. And they were going to have political issues. You know, not long after Paul, there's a very famous early uh, Christian named Tertullian, who, who he talked a lot about the, the, and it was a little bit different area, but, but, Basically, the Christians got blamed for everything early on. And, and he once said, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, those are both rivers, the remedy was always feeding Christians to the lions. And that was about 100 years after Paul, but it, actually more than that, but not much. But my point is the early church, those early Christians, they were definitely, definitely an easy scope, scapegoat whenever anything happened. Part of the reason was people believed each city had its own gods that lived in that city. And if you didn't worship those gods in that city, then bad things would happen in the city. And so whenever there was something bad, they, they knew somebody was not doing what they were supposed to, paying homage to these gods. And so they started looking, and usually it was the Christians who would become the scapegoat. It was their fault. So my point is, life in the early church was a struggle. And after Paul heard about everything that was going on in their lives, the issue like at Colossae, Paul would ask someone, in this instance, Timothy, we know, to get a pen and start writing. And he said, I have things I want to say to them. So what did Paul want to say to these absolutely brand new Christians as he was suffering in prison? Well, he starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith of Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven. 
You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit, growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among you yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehend the grace of God. Then he said, this you learned from Epaphras. There again, that's his friend. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now there is a ton there, more than we have time to focus on, but I want to hit on a couple things here. What Paul says, he thanks God as he's in his prison cell. He's thanking God for some things, specific things that's happening in that church. What does he thank God for? We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven. He gives thanks for faith, hope, and love. Now, if you've spent any time with Paul, you probably know he ends his great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, what? Saying, and now faith, hope, and love abide. And these three, and the greatest of these is love. So Paul, he focuses on love when he writes to the Corinthians. But with Colossians, his focus is hope. I think this is really interesting. Because he's suffering in prison, right? One of the first things he thanks God for is for hope. And I think that makes so much sense given his context. But there's even more there. Because Paul says this hope that he's talking about is the hope of the gospel that has come to them. And he's really specific here. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just that it's bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it is bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehend the grace of God. So he gave thanks that this hope of the gospel has been bearing fruit from the moment they heard about it. Now, he's thankful. I think that alone. But he's thankful that the gospel has given root. And he said that gospel is the hope. The, the, the reason that he wrote this letter to these brand new Christians was to tell them how to nurture that so that they can bear more fruit. And I think this is a message that we need today. Because above all else, this short little letter to the Colossians is about spiritual maturity. This is the one thing that Paul wanted to share with these infant Christians. They were just starting their faith journey. He's suffering in prison. He thanks God for them. He doesn't thank God. I think this is so important for us to hear as a church. What does he not thank God for? He doesn't thank God for their incredible worship. He doesn't thank God for their great church programs. He, he doesn't thank God for their great studies that they're putting on. He thanks God that Epaphras described their church with three terms. 
faith, hope, and love. He said the seed of the gospel, that's the hope. And it was planted. And then it took, it took root. And that was their faith, accepting that hope. And now it's growing and it's blooming as love. Let's go on. And, and he has made known to us your love in the spirit for this reason. Since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praising for you, praying for you, and asking that you might be filled with knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says he hasn't ceased praying for them since he heard about them. But what has he been praying? He says that he's been praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's praying that they might become spiritually mature. That's the single most important thing for Paul, for this ch church, this group of Christians, is that they're going to grow in their faith. Now, I want to pause there. If word of our church and word of your discipleship reached the Apostle Paul, what would we want said? What would be said? And how would we be described? Because as your pastor, my deepest, deepest prayer would be that we would be described as a community of faith and of hope and of love. Hillspring Church, the seed of faith took in that church. And the hope of the gospel has grown so strong as they have responded. And you can tell by their love. You can tell their behavior toward one another, the, the way they're in relationship with each other, their friends, their families, their, the, the, all the ways that they work to fit and meet the needs of the world around them. That's what Paul was thanking God because he heard that's the type of thing that was happening in Colossae. Are we orienting our lives? Are we really, really living our lives in such a manner that that's what would be said, how we would be described? You know, this short letter to Colossians, it's, it's Paul's prescription for spiritual maturity. It, it, it's, I want us to take these words seriously. Paul's saying the measure of a Christian is how you live out the gospel. The gospel message of Christ is, is hope. And if you accept that message of hope with faith, it has to be shown to the world around us through the ways we love. That means how we respond to others. There's only one right answer in that, and that's love. I mean, love is a sign of Christian maturity, he's saying. And that's not just good feelings toward one another, right? It's, it's our actual in-the-trenches behavior. It's in our relationships, it's in our friendships, it's in our families, our, our families at work, our friendships at work, our neighborhoods, the way we strive to give the thirsty a drink of water. 
This way we strive to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor. I mean, those are the things that Jesus said we're supposed to be doing, right? Paul says what matters is behavior. I mean, our behavior should stand out from the rest of the world. And the behavior of the world, what is that? Like anger and lust. It's like greed and, and duplicity. It's, it's, it's backstabbing. It's deceit. I mean, the list goes on and on, but all of that should get replaced as we start to follow Jesus. When the seed of the gospel takes root, it gets replaced with kindness. It gets replaced with gentleness. It gets replaced with forgiveness and acceptance. This is how you tell the Holy Spirit is at work. Paul prays, prays that would happen in even greater ways for this church. Let's go on. For this reason, Paul says, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praising for you, praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in his inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That was Paul's prayer for them is the reason he wanted to write this letter, so that they would grow and they would mature as disciples. And, and from his prison cell, you know, Paul, like I said, he could only do two things. He could write, he could pray. He did both. And as he did, he modeled for them something. He modeled faith and hope and love in action. And he models it for us too, I think. You know, I want to challenge us to read these words and make his prayer, our prayer for this church. This can happen in our church today. It is, but even more so. Paul said they need spiritual wisdom and understanding, and, and, and that's a deep sense of who and whose they are. God's at work in them. Are they creating the right circumstances for that work to flourish? Are they showing up? Are they nurturing God's work? Or are they harming God's work? This is about really following Jesus, going where he goes, doing what he does, living as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. He goes on, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Once you become part of his kingdom, once he is your king, the same power that won our salvation brought us into his kingdom just is beginning. This is the point. The, the adventure is just beginning. Our lives are supposed to conform 
with the new world that we are part of as we are following him. What is that? That's a journey of spiritual maturity, right? Paul was trained to be a rabbi of rabbis. I, I think this is critical to get. When he talked about rescuing people from one kingdom and giving them another kingdom, he's in Exodus. In Jesus, he's saying God was bringing about a new exodus, a new salvation. He was setting the slaves free. When we follow Jesus, we leave behind the Egypt of bondage to sin and death. And we gratefully move into our promised land, our inheritance. We do this with thanksgiving. Writing from this prison cell, Paul tells the Colossians that they should joyfully joyfully give thanks for this. And it's amazing how much he talks about thanksgiving and, and how much he talks about gr gratitude in all of his prison letters. That's going to come back over and over and over. Just wait till we get to Philippians. But in joy or in suffering, Jesus' followers are to give thanks. Why would you give joy in suffering? because of Jesus and who Jesus is. I want to share with you these five verses, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that we might come to have first place in everything. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, and by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now this is, this is actually a poem in Greek. It doesn't really translate well. Uh, they have the, just such a different language. And I, I'd love to go into specifics, but we don't have time. There's something I want to really, really highlight, though. And we may come back to it next week because there's something else I want to highlight. This whole poem is centered on one word in Hebrew. And it's in Greek, so I, I, I hope this doesn't get too complicated. But you have heard this one word thousands of times in your lives, I can guarantee you. It's a Hebrew word that can be translated several different ways, but usually it's, it's translated as in the beginning, or beginning, just beginning. But it can be translated as firstborn. It can be translated as before all things. It can be translated as head. Firstborn. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. That shows up twice in this poem, verse 15 and 18. Before all things, Paul says in verse 17, he himself is before all things, meaning Jesus. Head, verse 18, he says he is the head of the body, the head of the church. And also in verse 18, he says beginning, Jesus Christ, he said, is the beginning. Like, I don't want to get too, uh, th this is so important for us, though. The Hebrew word behind all of this is reshith. And that's the same word we find with the prefix in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Bereshith, 
in, in when you put the two words together. Ba means in or through or for. But Rashith can be translated as beginning, as head, as firstborn, as uh, before all things. And the point is, all three meanings of ba, that prefix, are in this poem. And all four meanings of Rashith are in this poem, in the Greek. So it's kind of like this poem is saying, if you mix up every single way to translate Genesis 1-1, that have been used to describe creation, they're also describing the truth in Christ. And Jesus is at the center of it all. Through him, all things came into being in creation through him, but also in the new creation that he is bringing about. I mean, there's so much in this poem that's going on, and we don't have time to talk about it so much. This is huge, though. We don't know. We don't know if Paul wrote this, if he's just quoting a hymn or a poem that was already going around. It doesn't really matter. And he does that several times in other letters. But it's about the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's just like John's prologue, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul is saying the beginning was centered on Jesus. And he's telling the Colossians, if you're going to grow as Christians, the single most important thing you can do is center on Jesus. Celebrate the supremacy of Jesus every moment of the day. And show it in your life. Jesus needs to be the center of everything. He needs to be the Lord of every single aspect of your life. The more Jesus becomes the center of our lives, we increase in wisdom. There's a whole thing on wisdom. I wish we had time. We may come back next week. I don't know. We're going to be disciplined right now. But, and it's incredible. So yeah, we'll come back to it next week. I, I just can't not do it. But we need to live lives of gratitude. And the more and more and more we realize who Jesus is and, and how our new lives are a new creation, we realize it's all a result of what he's done. And then we find true joy regardless of our circumstances, even while suffering in some sort of prison. Jesus had become the subject of Paul's life rather than one component of his life. And that changed everything. And here's the big deal for us today, I think. Discipleship, it's not a life pattern that we try to adopt, and it's not something we try to fit into, you know, our, uh, we juggle around with other important things. The goal of following Jesus, it's not even being saved. It's not even what happens after eternity. If the reason we're following Jesus is because of benefits that we're going to receive, that we're going to be awarded, that makes us the center of the relationship. We are the subject of our discipleship. And those are amazing, amazing, amazing gifts, but, but they're not the point. We don't want to center the gospel on what I get because that centers the gospel on me. Discipleship is about centering everything on Jesus and Jesus alone. That's spiritual maturity. 
when Paul heard about this fledgling group of young infant Christians just starting their journey, that's what he wanted them to know. You center everything on Jesus. This is what we need to discover today. There's so much in this poem. I, I, I got to hit three quick things, though, uh, really quick. Number one, he's saying it's by looking at Jesus that we discover who God is. He is the firstborn. He was before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. To see Jesus is to see God. To see God is to see Jesus, fully divine, fully human. Jesus teaches us what it's like to be God, but he also teaches us what it can be like to be human, fully human. Who we were meant to be, what we can be if we center our lives on Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but in Jesus, God came to us, became one of us. Paul is saying the more you get that, the more you understand that, the more you live into that, the more your response becomes a life of thanksgiving and a life of gratitude. This is a journey, and we need to be progressing, and we need to be maturing in our faith. Eventually, Paul says circumstances won't even matter, and he models this as he's suffering in prison. His life was about gratitude. We'll get more and more into that as we get into these letters, but Paul says Jesus was there in the first creation, and number two, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he brought about a new creation. His resurrection was a foretaste of what we will all experience. All of creation. In the Jewish tradition, you know, the temple was the place what, where God dwelled, where God lived, right? And, and that, that, that's Jesus. He's the new temple. We've talked about this. That's why in the Gospels, the temple in Jerusalem, it almost becomes a, a, a character in the story. It becomes anthropomorphized. It becomes a person. Jesus is the new temple. In the creation story in Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth together, and they're taku components, and they're supposed to work together. They were meant to interact. God walks among Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And that was where they intersected. It was like a temple, because God was there dwelling among creation. That was the original plan. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and he'll rebuild it in three days. Well, he's talking about the resurrection because he's the new temple. He is where God dwells. Jesus is where God is. Our hope is that one day we will be with God. We will see him face to face and we will dwell with him for all eternity because Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is supreme. He's talking about bringing a restored new creation together. This Colossian poem says that Jesus was the one through whom and for whom creation was made in the first place. He was the Alpha, the Omega. Jelson will talk about this in Revelation. The firstborn, the last firstborn of all dead, it says. He's the one through whom the world has been redeemed. He is our hope. He is our center. And he's bringing about a new creation. And number three, Jesus is the head of the church, meaning he draws us in to do this work with him. He's bringing about a restored new creation, and he's calling us to join in this work. 
And we do that as we center our lives upon him. Jesus, fully human, fully divine, teaches us what it means to be fully God, but also what it means to be fully human. That means we participate in his redemptive work. We're to follow him. He's our head, it says. If you're a disciple of someone, it means you actually follow them. Meaning you do what he does. You go where he goes. And, and please don't water down the phrase, I follow Jesus, therefore I have Jesus in my heart. Or accept Jesus in your heart. The word following should mean the same thing in every other instance of the term when we talk about following Jesus. I mean, we water it down, and, and, and you follow someone, you do what they do, you go where they go. That's what it's supposed to mean. You live your life after this person's example. Paul says we are to center everything on him. And as we do so, the Holy Spirit will work through us, and it starts around us to look a little bit more on earth as it is in heaven, which is what Jesus prayed, told us to pray for, Right? What we do really matters. How we live our lives matter. So what would people say about us, about our community, about our individual discipleship? It would be faith, hope, love. I'm going to close in prayer, but before I do, we're going to do something that we have not done, honestly, since COVID. And um, I just want to throw it out there. This is not a pressure thing at all. We used to have weekly communion. We'd have, you know, large, large communion the first week of the month, and we'll continue to do like we've been doing. But, uh, you know, our Stephen ministers are here at the end of worship, and we much, much, um, um, not as much, uh, you know, formality at all. But if you'd like to come up after worship for communion, we'd be honored to serve you. And, and frankly, that's our weekly altar call. You know, it's an opportunity for us to come forth, make that evangelical step to be prayed for, be prayed with. And so just from now on, we, we have, um, we'll have intinction. We are going back to intinction. We also have the, the prepackaged DIY communion. It's like I tried to call it. And it's totally up to you. There again, you know, and just so you know, we're going to start that again. I just think that's such a critical, critical thing for us. You pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for community. I thank you for the hope, the gospel, that you are restoring bringing about a new creation. I thank you for the opportunity you give us to respond in faith. And that our discipleship can tangibly be seen in our love for this world. We ask your blessings upon this community of faith as we together follow. In your son's name, amen.